If Treasury runs out of money to pay all of the government's bills because of the debt limit impasse, what would it actually mean for federal agencies and employees? Well, no one's exactly sure because it's never happened before. But two influential organizations want answers before things get to that point. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, one is taking the government to court over it. A federal judge in Massachusetts will hear oral arguments next Wednesday on whether the death limit itself violates the Constitution. The plaintiff is the National Association of Government Employees. The union's emergency petition asked the court to order the government to continue paying federal paychecks and retirement obligations, even if Congress doesn't vote to increase the debt ceiling. Not just that, the union is also asking the court to rule that the debt ceiling violates the constitutional separation of powers. Their argument is that under current law, the president would be forced to unilaterally make decisions on how federal money is spent, because if he abides by the debt limit, the Treasury wouldn't have enough cash to make all the payments Congress has already authorized. NAGE argues that deciding which bills to pay and not pay amounts to a line-item veto, something the Supreme Court ruled was unconstitutional during the Clinton administration. David Berto, the president of the Professional Services Council, a trade association that's not involved in the case, agrees the debt limit statute puts the president in something of an impossible situation. He can only abide by the debt limit by violating other laws. You know, Article 1, Section 9 says uh, essentially uh, no funds should be dispersed except on appropriation. Of course, Supreme Court decisions when uh, when Richard Nixon tried to to fail to pay uh, such appropriations, fail to spend them. Supreme Court decision said the reverse is also true. If it's appropriated, you have to spend it. Uh, the Trump administration defied that and basically said, let the Supreme Court enforce its own rules. Um, but uh, but that is still a, a constitutional interpretation is there. If money's appropriated, it has to be it has to be obligated and expended. Uh, also, though, the president has under Article two, uh, the requirement to faithfully execute the laws. And one of those laws is, in fact, you can't exceed the debt ceiling. So somewhere in there, you can't do both. Right. And there will have to be some choices. Nonetheless, PSC argues the administration needs to give agencies and federal contractors some clarity on what those choices would be if indeed the Treasury runs out of adequate cash to pay the government's bills. Even though the government has reached the brink of a default crisis numerous times before, there is still no playbook at all for how the federal government would operate. Stephanie Castro, PSC's vice president for policy, says there are whispers of informal guidance at the agency level, but each agency seems to be thinking about the problem a little bit differently. It's quite inconsistent across the government, and so you've got some agencies treating this like a shutdown, like you said thinking about stop work orders, thinking about all of that, um, determining who's essential and who's not. We've got other agencies thinking that, oh, we have appropriations, therefore we have the cash. And that's not exactly what the situation means. And then we've got a third subset of folks who are waiting for OMB to come with guidance. And so I think the the idea of having OMB guidance at a high level um, to help restore or maintain faith and, and trust and confidence in the U.S. government's ability to operate is also true at the agencies. They want to, to have guidance so that they have faith and trust and confidence that they can continue to do their jobs. One possible reason we haven't seen that kind of guidance yet is that the White House's official position is that a fault can't happen. President Biden speaking in the Rose Garden yesterday afternoon. I made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The Veterans Hospital remain open. And that economic progress will be made, and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. Congressional leaders understand that, and they've all agreed there will be no default. But with only about a week to go before a potential default situation, PSC argues it's irresponsible not to plan for that eventuality and to give agencies clarity about what would happen. 
For one thing, Berto says OMB needs to make clear that a default situation is very different from a government shutdown. In this case, agencies still have legally authorized appropriations for the rest of the fiscal year. It's just that the Treasury wouldn't have enough cash on hand to pay those obligations when they're due. We know it's not a government shutdown. It's not an absence of appropriations. There's plenty of appropriations. What we propose is that there's a risk uh, uh, to the government, and in fact, to, to, to far more than just the federal government, to the entire global economic structure of a, if America were to default. And to minimize that risk, it requires the government to act in ways that maximize the maintenance of the trust and faith in the government uh, of the government going forward. One of the ways in which we think that can be done is to keep the government fully operating every mission, every function, every activity continue going. This is sort of the opposite of what you do in a government shutdown where you decide what's essential and what's not essential, what needs to keep going and what needs to not keep going. It's our view and our advice to OMB that in order to send the most powerful signal, not only domestically, but globally, the government needs to continue fully operating and fully functioning. In its letter to OMB, PSC also asked the administration to make clear how spending prioritization decisions would happen in a scenario when there's not enough cash to go around. Berto says those decisions should be made by the president each day. Some agencies are under the impression that they would have the flexibility to make prioritization decisions on their own. We know that past plans have shown that the number one thing they'll be spent on is principal and interest on treasuries, right? Because that's the basis of the global financial marketplace and it's the basis of the global economy. And America doesn't want to either have that fall apart or have our role in that start to diminish, right? Uh, so, and, and we know that plans were built in the past to do exactly that. Principal and interest comes first. Okay, what comes second? We have agencies that have told us, we think we can pay all our bills. They sort of forget that they don't write the checks. The Treasury Department writes the checks. They just have a 23-digit fund site that they sent off to Treasury for those checks to be issued. And so there needs to be that kind of planning across the board for prioritization. And we think OMB should remind agencies that the only place those priorities are set is from the White House, is by direction of the president, that individual programs and individual agencies should not be making prioritization decisions. That needs to be done across the federal government. In the absence of a public plan from the White House, PSC says it's been doing its best to advise companies on what they should be doing to prepare for a default crisis. Berto says, assuming that there would be a prioritization process, the best thing vendors can do is make sure their invoices are submitted as quickly as possible. There's at least an assumption that if your invoices aren't in, they're not going to be in line, right? And so our advice is keep your invoices current, keep your invoices being submitted, and most importantly, follow up with the agencies after you've submitted the invoices to make sure there are no unanswered questions and that they're ready to approve those invoices, Our second line was talk to your customers. They're probably not going to get guidance from on high, at least not right away. Raise your concerns with them. Tell them what you're worried about. Ask them what they're thinking about. Ask them what they need from you to be able to make the case internally, to be able to have the decisions that they need to make in order to keep the programs operating and going. And the third is to pay attention to your cash situation. One of the things that we saw during the 35-day partial government shutdown is even companies, even if they had a line of credit that was existing and had additional capital you could draw from it, that banks tightened up as their risk picture changed, as the government shutdown continued into the second week, into the third week, into the fourth week, with no clear idea of when it was going to end, the financial institutions started tightening up. We are already hearing from our member companies that that is happening in some cases. This would be particularly damaging and devastating to small businesses that just don't have the access to cash that a large business does or the reserves in place to do that. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who 
were ten times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. 
and that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.